Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening completed his undergraduate studies at Christendom College and subsequently attained a licentiate and doctorate in sacred theology at the Pontifical University of the Lateran's John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome. Dr. Matthew Sakonikas served as the director of the Institute for Religious Studies at Benedictine College and has taught for St. Meinrad Seminary's Permanent Diaconate Program and St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity. In 2016, he joined the faculty of his alma mater, Christendom College, and currently serves as chairman of the theology department. Dr. Sakonikas and his family live in Front Royal, Virginia. It is my honor to introduce him to the ICC for the first time. Welcome, Dr. Sakonikas. Well, it's an honor to be with all of you. You know, this is a topic that's visited a lot, and so I'm grateful people have an interest. I, I think we're going to go into some new areas, new material here. But really, when we think about it, we look at Genesis, and, and we, we, we have some ideas. There's been some wonderful teachers out there that are certainly mentors to me. I remember in the very early 1990s, um, about 91, 92, when I started listening to Scott Hahn tapes and his conversion experience and anything I could grab on the Bible that uh, Scott Hahn was teaching. And so certainly he was a huge influence on, on the perspectives that I take in looking at Scripture. And what we're going to go into is take a real look at what is the meaning? What ultimately is the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? That's what I want to get to. And so I want to look at what God's purpose always was. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray with you a little bit. I have a very beautiful picture I like to share with people. And that is of Our Lady of Fatima. It's just a very moving picture. And I, and I did a prayer. It's an old prayer for the Marian movement of priests. I just thought it's such a beautiful prayer. I like praying because I like, we should never approach the scriptures except through uh, prayer to the very author of scripture, the Holy Spirit. And so there's a beautiful prayer to the Holy Spirit. I want to pray a couple times with you just so we can enter into the prayer. And then I wanted to look at what does the catechism say God's purpose was in creating us? And so I really want to open us up to what is it the magisterium has to say about what God's purposes are. And I want to show you that the very purposes that are first given to us in the catechism of the Catholic Church is exactly the meaning 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the real meaning of why God rested on the seventh day. And so what I'm going to do after showing you those slides and reading quickly a couple paragraphs, I then want to go into you and show you what the church says in its official magisterium as to what's the best way of doing an exegesis. What's the best way of drawing out from the scriptures what the sacred author is trying to get us to understand? So instead of imposing a 21st century view and a 21st century way of questioning and a 21st century way of telling history, we'll let the 1450 BC way of telling history speak to us and the 1450 BC culture be presented to us so that we get the 1450 view of what God resting on the seventh day was really saying to his desire for humans. And so I, wanna, I want to do all this to lead to end today. After going through the methodology we're going to do, I'm going to open the scriptures and follow the methodology with you. And that's going to lead us to the climax of reading the greatest of the church fathers in the East, in the East. In the West, we would say St. Augustine. In the East, we would say St. Gregory Nazianzen, one of only three, the one of only three church fathers who in the East would be referred to as the theologian. There's only the theologian is a title that only belongs to three. And, and all the more interesting about Gregory the theologian, he's the one in the Summa Theologia of St. Thomas Aquinas that St. Thomas Aquinas says we should always look to St. Gregory Nazianzen when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to teaching the faith. I don't know how many of you may already be familiar with it, but we all know who gave us the Latin Vulgate. That was St. Jerome gave us the translation from the, from the Greek and the Hebrew and gave us into the vulgar language, the Latin, so that everyone would have access to the Bible. But does anyone know who St. Jerome was taught, who taught St. Jerome how to read the scriptures and how to interpret the scriptures? St. Gregory Nazianzen. St. Gregory Nazianzen is the one who taught St. Jerome how to read the scriptures. So we're going to end tonight showing what Adam and Eve were really called to, how Moses' first audience would have understood the story of Adam and Eve, and how Gregory Nazianzen really is opening us up implicitly to that proper reading when we turn to an end today on the second uh, oration on Easter, the second uh, great homily that he gave right before he retired as Archbishop of Constantinople. Um, he got very tired of synods and decided he'd had enough and he retired. So he's a person I think many of us can get along with. Um, so that's, that's where we're headed tonight. And so this is the prayer I want you to join me with since the uh, Virgin Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And we want her to join us as she joined the apostles in the upper room and call the Holy Spirit into us so that we can enter the mind of God only through his Holy Spirit so that we can enter and have the mind of Christ so that we can enter the scriptures by faith in Christ, because faith in Christ is the essential key for us to really penetrate and enter into what God wants to teach us. And so if you would, we'll pray it together twice, first time just to get used to it, and the second time really to try to intend it, to mean it, as St. Teresa of Avila teaches, following St. Catherine of Siena, that vocal prayer is really about making sure we're remembering and keeping in our mind who we're speaking to and intending it 
So remembering in our mind who we're speaking to and trying to mean the words we're saying. So we're remembering and we're meaning, we're bringing two and three together, where two or three gather in my name, there I am in their midst. And so this is this union with God we need in prayer. This is the union we need from the Holy Spirit for the scripture study. So we're going to pray it twice, not because quantity matters, but to try to enter into it the second time we pray it a little bit more fully. And so if you'll pray with me, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. Come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. Mary, our loving mother and seed of wisdom, pray for us. St. Michael, pray for us. The plan of God, uh, this is from paragraph 52 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it says, this is the very meaning that from the beginning, Genesis, I'm going to demonstrate that chapters one and two were trying to teach us that from the beginning, God was trying to get humans to share in his divinity. That's what chapters one and chapter two are implicitly about when you read it in the context of Moses's original audience. And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches and says, God who dwells in unapproachable light wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created. So what did he make us for? To share in divinity. He made us in order to adopt them as his sons in his only begotten son, to become sons in the son. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. And so from the beginning, God wanted to bring Adam and Eve to share in his divinity, and he began revealing things about himself in the garden so that he could bring them in a deeper surrender of their will to him and so begin to receive God more fully, to be prepared for a fuller union with God, to enter more fully into God. Now, what you see in paragraph 52 is already something if you open your Bibles. Open up, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. This is the plan of God. And the plan was that we would always be shares in God's divinity through Jesus Christ. And so it says, we'll begin in verse 3, and we're going to go through verse 10 to have in the back of our minds. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before God even created the world, he knew us in Christ, and that Christ would bring to completion all things. He destined us in love, pure gift. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. So he destined us, he destined us to enter into the relationship that his natural son, the Logos, the eternal word had with him, that relationship of sonship that he had before, before we were even created. God destined us to enter into that relationship 
through his son's relationship with him. You recall where Jesus says to us, nobody knows the son but the father, and nobody knows the father but the son and anyone to whom the son reveals him. Jesus wants to unite his humanity and divinity, his divinity through his humanity into our humanity, share his divinity, so that through the union we have with him, we can enter his relationship with the Father and be made sons in the Son. This was the plan. Again, verse 5, he destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to recapitulate all things in him. Of course, this is the motto of Christum College in Latin. It will say, instare in omnia, to restore all things in Christ. And so this is the idea of recapitulation, that Christ will take every failure, every broken failure that was ever made, and in himself restore it, and draw all the past into a new beginning and a new creation, a new history. And so this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is where we get from paragraph 52, which, which you see there, this idea of we were made in order to be adopted by grace to become sons in his only begotten son. So how did the early church fathers speak about this? Where do we see paragraph 52 in the catechism spoken a little bit more? And what we're going to see spoken of as well at the end of, of, of this hour in Gregory Nazianz. And well, you'll see that in paragraph 460, we get a little bit of more insight in what's being spoken of, of how we share and are made partakers in his divinity. And so it says in paragraph 460, it picks up on St. Peter and it says, the word became flesh. So the eternal son, the logos, meaning as in John's gospel, it says in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. And so the word, the logos the second person in the Trinity, the Logos became flesh to make us, quote, partakers of the divine nature. And so that's from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And this is straight out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Then it goes to about the year 180, and it quotes from St. Irenaeus. And commenting on what this means, St. Irenaeus says, this is why the Son of God became the Son of Man. So that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. And then that same Irenaean tradition, we run into the Alexandrian, St. Athanasius, church father and doctor, savior of the church from, savior in Christ, savior of the church in Christ from the Arian heresy. He defeated it with this very concise announcement or kerygma. And St. Athanasius, about 321 in his book On the Incarnation, he said, for the Son of God 
became man so that we might become God. And of course, he means by grace, that through the humanity of Jesus Christ, we share the divinity that dwells in him bodily, as it's phrased in Colossians. And what I'm trying to say is actually we see this in the seven days of creation, these very scripture quotes, these very patristic quotes that we see here are implicit, unmistakably implicit, when they're read in the framework of the mind of Moses, who I will argue is the substantial author of Genesis. He is substantially, because of the liturgy we're going to see in Exodus, we're going to see that same liturgy as being presupposed in Genesis. The liturgy at Sinai is going to be presupposed in, in Genesis. The substantial authorship of Moses is unmistakable, his influence upon this work. And so to justify this move of me saying these very quotes you see from St. Athanasius, from St. Irenaeus, developing what was revealed by Jesus Christ himself in the transfiguration, that we are to share in that divinity he revealed coming out of him in the transfiguration when we partake in the sacraments, especially Holy Communion. How do I make this argument that I am reading correctly Genesis in order to make these kinds of claims? I want to show you what the church says about how we should do an exegesis of scripture. And so I'm going to move into a document here that is uh, Verbum Domini. And it was published about 2010. It was published by uh, Pope, then Pope Benedict XVI. I call him B16 on the slide so I could fit it in on the title. And so Pope Benedict, writing on the anniversary, I think it was about the 50th anniversary that he, he was aiming for. Perhaps it was, let me do the math, from 1965 with De Verbum, the dogmatic Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. This Number 34 of Verbum Domini is a commentary on chapter, on, on paragraph 12, paragraphs 1, 2, and 3 of the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, De Verbum. So, of course, this is, however, called Verbum Domini. And so what he says is this. He's basically going to say we need to approach scripture using two levels of methodology. The historical critical, rightly practiced without false presuppositions, and the theological method. These two levels must be together and are inseparable for a full exegesis of these books. And this is the exegesis I'm going to follow. I'm going to demonstrate to you how and why I'm following that exegesis. So what he says is, he basically reminds us that, uh, skipping down to the quote, He's quoting Dave Arabum and he says, seeing that in sacred scripture, God speaks through human beings in human fashion, it follows that the interpreters of sacred scripture, if they are to ascertain what God has wished to communicate to us. Yes, we, we want to ascertain why seven days of create, why does God create man on the sixth day last? And then it says God rested. What is the real meaning of his resting is what I want to get at. And so that means I, I have to look at, I should carefully search out the next part of this quote, the meaning which the sacred writers really had in mind, that meaning which God had thought well to manifest through the medium of their words. And so on the one hand, the council emphasizes the study of literary genres and historical context. So in other words, I have got to get 
into the authentic historical context, something everyone's claiming they do in their exegesis, and yet there's such a wide variety of exegesis. And, and let's face it, not all of these exegesis are contradicting each other, too. There's, there's a way in which they recapitulate one another and they complement one another. But that's only one level. There's only one level there. That's the historical to get to the literal sense. Now, there's another level that he's, uh, he's, he's, he's writing this correction in Verbum Domini number 34 because too many theologians limited themselves to only this historical critical method. They didn't bring in the next level that the church says must be brought in. And so that's the next slide. What he's saying needs to be brought, brought back in is interpreting it in the same spirit in which it was written. You can't just approach the scriptures as a historical text. They were written under the spirit of God. You must bring your faith in Jesus Christ to bear. And so he's bringing up 12.3 of Dave Verbum, the dogmatic constitution of divine revelation, which it says scripture must be read in the same capital S spirit. Now there's bad translations that are online and the S is lowercase, but the original Latin is a capital S spirit to it's a direct reference to the Holy spirit, a direct reference to the comment by Jerome that you must enter the Holy Spirit in order to read it. In other words, you must enter into God's pedagogy. Paragraphs 51 to 53 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church are clear that God reveals himself gradually to us. He was working with the Israelites who had taken on Egyptian culture, and even though God had elected them, they were still very much a part of Egyptian culture. They weren't ready for the fullness of what God wanted to give them. They were too habitually stuck in the vices of Egypt, much like Catholics in America. Unless the grace of God helps you transcend this culture, then you're living as a Catholic in name only. And so the very mysteries of God are something that you see as legalisms instead of participation in God and God trying to share his divinity with you and make you more fully human. That God is trying to set you free, as Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Our religion is not oppressive legalism. Our religion is God trying to put his divinity into our soul, but we have to want it and surrender to it in order to receive it. We can't control it by technique and force God into us by ritual technique. It has to be a surrender to the will of God and love of God. And so we have to enter scripture seeing that God always wanted to share that God is a father and the father wants to raise us up into equality with himself. That sounds crazy. Equality with God. Yeah, God is love. St. John of the cross says that it is the mystery of the lover to want to make the beloved equal to himself. That is what God wants. God's not afraid of us. And if God could make us God by nature, he would. But it's a logical contradiction. And God doesn't do logical contradictions. It, it would be like saying, can God make a square circle? Well, not, not in the same time and space. These are by definition um, opposed. They're contradictory by definition. And so that wouldn't be a real, a square circle wouldn't be a real thing. And God only does real things. God can't 
make us God by nature. Because to be God by nature means you have to be without beginning. You have to exist without beginning. Well, as a creature, we have a beginning. But God gave us a beginning in order to increase us by his grace in knowledge and love of him, therefore bringing the image of God into the likeness of God. Through our freedom, through our free choices, in which God helps us complete consolidating his goodness within us and a share of his divine life within us because our will wants him in us. And so his will abides in us and we live off of God's own will and eternal life. And so this is the faith in which now we don't just look at the scripture as let's nonstop critique the historical possibilities and turn our religion into a philosophy of religion. No, that's not that's not the second level that must be meshed with historical critical. We must have faith that God exists, and we accept that God has revealed himself in the resurrected, uh, the resurrected way, truth, and life, Jesus Christ, which means now I know to look at the scriptures canonically. Key number one, I read scripture through the scriptures, that the later books of scripture actually help explain what came earlier. Point number two. The second key, there are three keys to the theological method that must be meshed with historical critical method inseparably when I practice the historical critical methods. And so key number two says, so that key number one is called canonical exegesis, reading scripture through scripture, letting scripture balance itself out. Remembering there's a pedagogy of God working gradually with us, that there's an unfolding of his plan as his chosen people progress. He continues to help them better understand what he already gave them from the beginning. But you've also got to look at your Bible and say, you know what? This book, this book is a library of books. And so we have the bad habit of saying, well, Genesis came first, which means I should first read Genesis, then read Exodus. No. Actually, if I want to enter the cultural context of Moses, I shouldn't read Genesis first. Why? Because Genesis chapters one through three were not written before Moses experienced entering the glory cloud on top of Mount Sinai, which came first. God called Moses and said, go free my people from Egypt. And so, um, Moses said, wait a second, before I do that, let me write Genesis. Or did God say, I'm using you as my instrument of salvation, as I promised Abraham that for 400 years, his descendants would be slaves in, a, in, the, in another land, but in the fullness of time, I'll call them back to this land, and you're going to be my instrument to do this. So did Moses first go down to Exodus and bring them to Mount Sinai and experience Mount Sinai? And later write Genesis, or did Moses first write Genesis and then head down to Egypt? The very reason we have a Genesis is because Exodus was successful. If it wasn't successful, there'd be no Genesis. There'd be no book of Genesis. It wouldn't matter. We know nothing about the Israelites. My point is simply this. Since Moses first experienced the exodus and the miracles of God in Egypt 
and the chastisements, the 10 chastisements that happened before the people were freed to begin the journey into the wilderness to the promised land, all that he experienced in that time becomes the cultural framework when finally he gets to sit down and write the history that preceded the Exodus. So Moses is substantial author of Genesis chapters one to three, but he doesn't get the chance to write all of this until he brings them to Mount Sinai and remains there for a year, which means if we will first understand what's happening at Exodus, we'll have the cultural mindset that when people receive the Genesis story, we'll read it how they would have read it. And that's what I want to accomplish tonight. And so that involves key number two. And key number two says, account is to be taken of the living tradition of the whole church. But what's the living tradition of the whole church? That means not only the scriptures as we have them, and in number three, not just the doctrines that we have from our exegesis of scripture, but number two means lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of praying is the law of believing. What is the first thing the people were told to do in Exodus before they received a written word? They were told to worship God in spirit and in truth, to purify themselves, to be prepared to meet the Lord. They began practicing liturgies. And the liturgies are what are being spoken of in number two. The living tradition is we were worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping God in spirit and truth through the Eucharist before we received the Gospel of Matthew. We were already a worshiping community. That is the living tradition. How did we worship God? Because that sets a Catholic framework and a sacramental worldview. The worldview that the invisible world is more real than the visible world, a sacramental worldview. The sacramental worldview, this liturgical memory, what is a liturgy? A liturgy is a consolidation of the memory of a people. And if you'll enter into the liturgy, you'll enter into the memory of the people. And entering that will enable us to read Genesis, which is liturgical. By the very fact we open with seven days of creation, we already know we're dealing with liturgy and a liturgical week with the number seven. Of course, the number seven we know goes much deeper. The number seven means oath in Hebrew, not just the number seven. And so seven is involved in the making of covenants and making people family. And so it is these keys, we're going to bring together now the historical critical, and we're going to bring with it the theological level. So the method of the theological, again, how's this very number 34 end? Only where both the methodological, only where both methodological levels, the historical critical and the theological are respected, can one speak of a theological exegesis and exegesis worthy of this book? All right, let's do it. Enough slides, enough talk. Let's enter into it. So if you would, let's open up to the key to it all. I got uh, my handy dandy dry erase marker ready to go. What I want to do is make some drawings for you that will help you understand Moses setup is what's presumed to be the setup in Eden. What the people of Israel are going to experience at Mount Sinai is the context for how they're going to understand what's happening in Genesis. Because 
They're reading it through their cultural experience. The cultural experience of Mount Sinai, when they're reading it, they're going to assume Adam and Eve, since God is giving them the true worship, Adam and Eve are involved in true worship. So the experiences of Adam and Eve must be similar to what their experiences of making a covenant at Mount Sinai are like. Since God made a covenant with Adam and Eve, and God is the same yesterday, today, Mount Sinai, and forever, the eschatological ending of all things. Since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then what they're experiencing the day of Mount Sinai, what Adam and Eve experienced must be similar. So what was experienced? Well, what was the original plan of God? That's Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. So if you're with me, take a look, open up your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19. We're going to begin at verse 6. They've arrived at Mount Sinai. I'm trusting you know the history of the deliverance uh, up until that time. And so chapter 19, verse 6, the Lord says, I'll start in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, all the people are priests. All the people are kings. This is the royal priesthood. This is what, if you'll stay with one finger in Exodus 19, this is actually what Peter is describing. It comes a little bit more clearly in my Revised Standard Version translation. Not that one version, as uh, Father Hezekiah was saying earlier. Um, we all know that uh, St. Paul used the King James Version. So um, I am joking. <laughs> it's okay to laugh at that one. <laughs> uh, so. If you, um, if you take a look, uh, keeping one finger in Exodus chapter 19, which I just lost mine, it, this is where St. Peter describes what we've become in Christ, that you've got to remember the original call in Exodus 19 was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, but because of the golden calf, that was a failure. It is Jesus Christ who brings that plan to completion during the pause that God gives. So Peter proclaims to us, and he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, telling Christians that they've actually entered into God's original plan. You are a chosen race. This is chapter 2 of the first letter to Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, you are a royal, a kingly priesthood a holy nation, God's own people. So by a covenant, God was going to make us his own people. He was going to make us family. He was going to share his divinity with us, which is what we're moving to. And this is accomplished through making a covenant. If you keep my covenant, in other words, I got am making an oath of myself to you and you need to return the oath to me so that through the exchange of oaths, we can enter a covenant like a marriage where two become one and each partner gets to share in all the other possesses by becoming family. So we get to share in all that God possesses, and God gets to share in all that we possess. So we see a little bit of this meaning, which goes back to the number seven. Take a look again. I was told to flip through the Bible with you a little bit here. So we're going to do a lot of flipping. Take a look at where we capture this meaning of the number seven with oaths. I want to demonstrate two quick places. Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. It says, 
Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, God, the eternal. Well, it's interesting. I have a footnote here. And if you have the RSV, there's a footnote for it. And it has in the J, J footnote, it says, where it says uh, the place is called Beersheba. It's translated either as well of the seven or well of the oath. In other words, that root word Shiva can mean either oath or seven. Flip, if you would, to Exodus chapter 16. I'm sorry, I said Exodus. I meant Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, the very last verse in chapter 16, well, verse 59. Let me demonstrate it to you. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 59. Yes, thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. In other words, what makes a covenant? The oath, which is represented by the number seven, which already begins to help us begin to see why did God choose seven days of creation? It is God swearing himself to us. Why? Because God wants us to share in all that he is. The lover, God, who is love, had a plan to make the beloved, us, through his son, to share in his divinity. The lover wants to make the beloved, us, equal to himself by grace. This is the greatness of God's love. God's not afraid of us. God loves us and wants to give us all that he is. He wants to make us shares in the divine nature. And so, this shows us what's actually happening in Exodus 19. God is going to come down, it says. Take a look. God is going to come down on the mountain in chapter 19. Chapter 19, he's going to come down on the mountain. He gives regulations. He says this, chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 11. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And you shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Take heed that you do not go up into the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No one shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready by the third day and do not go near a woman. It's all very interesting. I want to map out what's going on here. The glory cloud of God is going to represent eternity joining itself on this mountain, Mount Sinai, the glory cloud is coming down on the mountain. He says, erect a border around the mountain. In other words, when God comes down in this cloud, heaven is joined to earth, which means God, who is all holy, in touching this mountain, has caused the mountain to be holy. And those who are not prepared to enter a holy place must not enter. They must recognize the holiness of God and that it's not for humans to take God. It's for humans to receive God. And so he gives rules. He says, wash yourself, purify yourself, wash your clothes. 
And then he also says, don't touch a woman. It's not because women have cooties. It's because he's saying you must let go of earthly things. Stop seeking your meaning from your marital relation. You were made for a higher marital relation. Those marital relations are good, but there's a time and place for everything. When God comes down to meet you, it's time to give up earthly things to be joined to God. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, purify yourself outside the mountain. This is the area of purification. And there's going to be a sacrifice out here. They're going to set up an altar and a bowl of washing outside underneath this, this vision, this view you see here. I'm drawing a bowl for washing and an altar for sacrifice. And don't touch a woman because, in other words, you've just washed yourself and you've washed your clothes. You don't bring anything into a sacred territory that represents loss of life. And so anything that comes from a human being on you represents loss of life. This is the place of total life. Life itself has touched the mountain and wants to share. Why would he come down other than to share his life? He wants us to enter his life. And so the very next movement we see is actually after they receive the word of God and surrender to the Ten Commandments. In other words, purified by the Ten Commandments, they're giving up those things that go against the commandments are being purified. They're getting out of their life the things that keep their heart from living in the truth, from loving God and loving their neighbor. This is what purifies and permits them to cross the border when they're called. Now, the first people called to cross the border, Moses goes up and down without going to the cloud repeatedly. Moses goes up to receive the word of God and then tell the people and up to receive the word of God and tell the people. And after the sacrifice, look in chapter 24 now. Flip to chapter 24. It says, Moses is going to bring up the elders. Moses is going to bring up the elders. So everyone understands that this mountain has become a sanctuary. If you haven't done the purification rites, if you haven't abstained from relations with your spouse, if you haven't washed yourself showing ritual cleansing, before entering a sanctuary, then you're not allowed to enter. And of course, we know there's a very important border because what's the threat for crossing the border? Death. Don't cross the border. Don't even, what's the word used? Touch it. Now, I'm going to make an allusion to what we're going to learn next week. That's a direct allusion to Eve. When she will say, when we get together next week, I'm going to demonstrate We don't hear God saying, don't touch the tree. We only hear God telling Adam, don't eat from it. Eve is actually showing you she understood what the tree represented, that it was a border you don't cross. She applies the same cultural language of Mount Sinai, don't even touch, God says, the border. Eve says that about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She says, don't even touch it, which lets us know it's a border you do not cross. That's its meaning. That's why she uses the phrase, it's a direct allusion to Exodus chapter 19. Okay, this is a direct quote about Egypt. Remember, where did that Moses just pull these people out of? Moses just pulled these people out of Egypt so they would know Egyptian culture. And this is exactly why Moses says, wash yourself and abstain. In other words, ancient Egypt, you couldn't enter a chapel, which is a sanctuary. There was always a curse at a sanctuary. What is the threat of death? It's a curse. And so here I've given you a quote right out of the Oxford Essential Guide to Egyptian Mythology, and it says, 
that old kingdom tomb owners were especially preoccupied with fears that an impure individual might enter the chapel and defile the sacred area. And so they use curses like, you will die if you cross this. Don't cross it without being invited. And traditionally, such blasphemers are referred to those who had not purified themselves or had eaten a forbidden food. So to cross the barrier without going through the proper purification and invitations in ancient Egypt was called eating a forbidden food. Sound familiar? Adam and Eve eat a forbidden food? So at least one example uh, also places adulterers in this category. So what is idolatry in ancient Egypt? Spiritual adultery, which they commit with a golden calf. Negative connotations regarding sexual activities before entering a holy place, such as a temple, are documented later in the mortuary literature. What did Moses say? Wash yourselves and don't touch a woman. You must give up the earthly because you're about to enter the heavenly. There's a time and place for everything. And when God's true presence is among you, it's time to focus on God. Now then, we move from purification to Exodus chapter 19 with the 70 elders go up the mountain in verse 9. And it says, so chapter 24, sorry, chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So that's chapter 24, verses 9 to 10. Now, notice they didn't enter the cloud yet. What they're experiencing is enlightenment. They're viewing the mysteries of God and experiencing by sight, participating and contemplating how much greater heaven is. And so... They go halfway up and are looking under the cloud and they no longer see a cloud of fire. That's what people who haven't purified themselves see, fire and death threatening them. But those who've been invited, they see peace. They've been enlightened. They know God loves them and God wants to share his divinity. And so they've received enlightenment. Now, here's the key for getting it. Take a look at this cloud. Heaven came down and it remained. It says here, take a look. Chapter 19, verse 15. I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 15. I keep, I'm, I'm big on chapter 19. I'm still in chapter 24 of Exodus. Moses is about to go into the cloud. Take a look at chapter 24, verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. It's just repeating what's already there. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. If something's settling down on something, what's another word for it? Resting. The Lord is resting. What did God do on the seventh day in Genesis? He rested. In other words, the temple of Eden has the glory cloud come down at the center at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God was resting so that Adam and Eve could enter him. How do we know that? Well, read what's happening here. Then Moses went up the mountain. Chapter 24, verse 16. The glory of the Lord set on the mountain and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain and the sight of the sons of Israel down here in purification. And Moses entered the cloud. On what day did Moses enter the cloud? The seventh day. 
Moses had communion, union, union with God on the seventh day. Moses is a sign of Adam and what Adam should have received, but Adam sinned before entering into union with God. This is what the trees of knowledge of good and evil represent, a border. They cross the border unprepared, immature, and not yet ready. And they sinned against God. They didn't maintain God in them. So what we're seeing here in Moses is what enables us This is what enables us to take, what was Moses' mindset of the seventh day? The seventh day was entering God's rest. He experienced all this before he wrote Genesis. So when he wrote Genesis, he's trying to get us to enter into his mind of what it meant. Who is the first audience reading Genesis? Minimally, it can't be an audience before those who saw Moses enter the cloud on the seventh day, because Genesis was not written until after Exodus. So when they hear God made man, male and female, in his image last, and then God rested on the seventh day, then that means somehow God has united heaven and earth in himself at the trees of the knowledge of good and evil, and was awaiting Adam and Eve to eventually be prepared like Moses. He didn't just enter right away. He was prepared And he didn't enter until the proper purifications, the proper sacrifices, being dressed properly, and then entering into union with God. So I want to close tonight by quickly reading some of what was in the mind of St. Gregory Nazianzen as the close of part one. And we're going to open up into part two, understanding the sin a little bit better. Let's, because, you know, we're getting close to the time here. Let's take a look at what St. Gregory Nazianzen had to say uh, about this all. And by the way, um, I have uh, a website that might be helpful too. I want you to read chapter 34, verse 29 of Exodus. If you want to see what did it look like after Moses had union with God, you just need to read Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. It says, Moses, when he came out of the cloud, Read from 34, chapter 34, verse 29 through, um, oh, 35 or so. It, it says, light shone out of Moses' face. In other words, the divinity of God filled Moses. So I'll reopen when we get back together next week. I want to read what Moses looked like to show you what Adam and Eve lost. The divine light of God. Moses had uni- light emanated out of Moses. Why? Because his will was so in God, God now lived in Moses. And Moses lived off of God's own life. And so the divinity, the divine light of God shone out of Moses, which is what God always wanted to clothe us in and what Adam and Eve were clothed in before they sinned. I'll pick up on that. I'm trying to get a lot of information and flipping through the Bible uh, in two hours. So let me at least end on this. Let's look at what Gregory Nazianzen had to say about the trees. And then we'll take some questions. And I'll stick around as long as you like. So this is from St. Gregory Nazianzen. This is what he says the meaning of the trees were. So Gregory Nazianzen says this. This being he placed in paradise, whatever that paradise may have been, having honored him with the gift of free will in order that good might belong to him, 
as the result of his choice. So in other words, we were given freedom in order to surrender to God's word, to bring God's word into us, to hold on to God's word, to live for God's word. And so God gave us freedom and free choice in order that we would make good, we would be developed in goodness, in God's own goodness. And so that goodness would belong to him as the result of his choice, no less than to him who had implanted the seeds of it. And so we were made to till the immortal plants by which is perhaps meant the divine conceptions, both the simpler and more perfect. In other words, the trees represented something that reflected a knowledge of revelation of God to us. And as we contemplated and understood it, we could surrender our more our will more to God and be clothed in God and ready to meet God in union. And so the very last sentence, last two sentences on this slide say, he gave Adam a law as material for his free will to act upon. The law was a commandment as to what plants he might partake of and which one he might not touch. In other words, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is put there in order that Adam can surrender to God by leaving the tree alone. And every moment he is leaving the tree alone, he is, his will is living in God and God's will is living in him. And he's living off of the divine will of God just by surrendering his free will to the law. In other words, the tree wasn't put there to trip him up. The tree was necessary for him to have something to surrender to God to so that God could enter into him because he surrendered to God's word. And so God infused his life in Adam and through Adam. And so Adam always lived in grace. And so Adam was being developed by God. He was moving through the same process because this right here, okay, if I draw a bird's eye view of this, if I draw a bird's eye view of this side view of Mount Sinai, it looks like this, a circle with an entrance area and something in the middle. In other words, the cloud is represented by the something in the middle, and this border here is represented by this border. In other words, a sanctuary with something in the middle. Sinai, when you draw it as a bird's eye view, is the Garden of Eden. Again, Sinai is the Garden of Eden. In other words, it's a sign of Eden. And so Adam is inside the bordered area, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the veil, hiding the tree of life, which is union with God. It's a border. That's why Eve says, don't even touch it. It's a reminder of the border that the Israelites are not allowed to even cross or touch. And so it goes on, and it says in the second Easter oration, the tree he wasn't supposed to touch. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? This ladder was the tree, the tree that was a law by which he could, he could receive God into him by obeying the law not to touch it. So Adam now is living off of God just by living a tree, leaving a tree alone. This ladder was a tree of knowledge, not, however, because it was evil from the beginning when planted, nor was it forbidden because God grudged it to men. Let not the enemies of God wag their tongues in that direction or imitate the serpent. But it would have been good, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have been good if partaken of at the proper time. 
For the tree was, according to my theory, contemplation. This is the father, greatest father and doctor of the church in the East, Gregory Nazianzen saying this. It represents contemplation, which is only safe for those who have reached maturity of habit to enter upon, but which is not good for those who are still somewhat simple and greedy. Yes, Adam and Eve were perfect in their humanity, but they were immature. They needed to pass through enlightenment more by contemplating what was in the garden and continuing the surrender of their will to God in preparation for communion. But they rushed communion without being prepared, without their heart surrendered, without being dressed, and they tried to take divinity instead of receiving it by God's invitation. And so we see here, if we will get Sinai right, we get Sinai right, we can see that by mapping it in the bird's eye view, we're actually looking at the Garden of Eden. Now, this is just the beginning, part one. Part two, we're going to go into detail of this and understand better the sin and understand better what the serpent would have represented to Adam and Eve, taking the cultural context of Moses. I'm open for questions. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Sakonikis. Um, I can see that plenty of questions have come in. Yeah, doctor. So Teresa Cotter wrote, uh, I have a question. I understand the sin of Adam and Eve was to take rather than receive union with God. How does that sin translate into a sin today? In other words, um, how do we commit that sin today? And so I think some of what we're looking at here is we, we want to receive God. In other words, so I'm, I'm talking about the sin of taking things by our power, trying to, trying to put God in a box and control God and by technique take. When rather what we're supposed to do is have filial love of God, which also means a filial fear, a respect, a respect that we don't do anything that would ever separate us. Not that God is a tyrant, but we so love God, we don't want to displease him. God means so much to us. And so I think really what we want to look at is um, in terms of rather than receive, take instead of rather than receive, this is where we have to recognize um, more so it's about even receiving God's word in faith. In other words, our failure to have faith today, I think, is a little bit of, of the sin and pride of man in which we want to fix everything apart from God. We want to control. We want to give ourselves life. And this is taking. And so I think um, I wish I could answer that a little bit better. But I would say the sin of taking translates today into trying to take life by embryonic stem cell research, by technique we're willing to kill other humans and the most fragile beginning of a human being, an individual human being, who by being an individual human being as a person, we're willing to kill them and take their life because we think we have a right to continue our biological existence when in fact our spiritual soul is what matters far more than our biological. So better to die biologically than to have bad will towards God and fellow man. But uh, do I just keep going through the questions then? Here, I've got another one for you. I, I okay. actually saw one come in from uh, Ahmed, and I, I see he's actually joined us on screen. So do you want to just ask your question live? Yeah, sure. Um, hello. My question was, uh, did the early Christians view the church as the new Garden of Eden? Uh, certainly the book of Revelation um, 
expresses itself as the true Eden. In other words, what is Eden really? Eden is paradise is wherever God joins heaven to earth. Wherever there's a union between heaven and earth, momentarily paradise is experienced. Just take a look at the Virgin Mary appearing to St. Bernadette Subaru. Notice as she's caught up in the Holy Spirit and seeing the Virgin Mary who hasn't left heaven, she seems to be on earth, but the truth is by the glory cloud under her feet, earth is now able to receive heaven in the visionary. And you stick a candle under her arm for 15 minutes, it didn't burn her. Why? Because heaven had joined itself to her soul um, and to that location at Lord's. And so you could not visibly see heaven, but Bernadette could because she was so participating in the Holy Spirit that her body was experiencing the fullness of life. And that's why a candle under her arm for 15 minutes wouldn't burn her. So what is Eden? Eden is Mount Sinai is Eden. The temple, when the glory cloud of God in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the glory cloud fills the temple, that's Eden. And that's why they carved images of palm trees and animals and cherubim inside Solomon's temple. Because when heaven joins itself to earth, that's Eden. So the Eucharist amongst the earliest Christians was viewed as the tree of life, that you are receiving from the tree of life, that, that by receiving Holy Communion, you are where heaven and earth are joined. So that is why, that is why we believe we are entering heaven whilst, what is Moses doing when he goes up the mountain, he's standing on earth while he's in heaven, because heaven is joined to earth. And Holy Communion, while standing on earth, we are somehow in heaven when we pass through the new veil of bread and wine. And so Holy Communion is Eden. It just hasn't been eschatologically realized in the full beatific vision. So um, I hope that's an answer. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does answer my question, but I was more, I guess, is it like parallels uh, in um, like of the creation of Eden um, that connects with, you know, how the church came about? Well, Eden is a very mystical mountain. We have references to this mystical mountain again in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 28, where it's referred to as the mountain of God. And so if you'll read Isaiah chapter two, it says the mountain of the Lord shall be raised above all the other mountains. Well, this is not a physical place. It's a spiritual place. So in other words, Jesus is the true temple. His resurrected body ascended into heaven. Well, when you ascend into heaven, you're higher than any mountain on earth. And so the truth is, since Jesus remains in heaven while we receive him on earth through Holy Communion, that means we are actually climbing the higher mountain. And whatever the Eucharist is made present, there is the mountain of the Lord. There's what Eden symbolized. All right, I have one more question. Well, there are, there are tons of other questions. I'm happy to go. I think for, for the interest of time, we're going to just take one, and I'm going to save the rest uh, and, and see if we can bring them in next week. Uh, this one is from Kathleen. She asks, uh, so the Garden of Eden and the experience of Adam and Eve are not symbolic? Rather, are they realistic occurrences of the first created humans? I think the important thing to point uh, to take from this is this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So just like we can look at Moses as prefiguring Jesus Christ, he prefigures Jesus, right? Because he come down, he come down from the mountain and he's radiating divinity. Moses is. But it's not his divinity. He first had to go into the glory cloud to share in it. So this is a prefigurement of the transfiguration, which is much greater than Moses because Jesus' origins are greater than Moses. Jesus exists without beginning as the Logos, and, he, and he's born in time of the Virgin Mary. And you'll notice that the transfiguration, the light that's shown from Moses' face comes out of Jesus without Jesus having to go into the glory cloud because Jesus is God. And so Jesus causes the glory cloud to come. And so Moses prefigures Jesus. But just as he prefigures Jesus, he's also a sign of a truth about our past. It doesn't only go forward to what's coming. Moses also tells us about our past. Since God is the same yesterday, today, Mount Sinai, and forever, what Jesus restores to us and shows us in the transfiguration, that means Moses is also teaching us something about our past and our origins. So Moses is, in fact, telling us about the original covenant at humanity's beginning, of which Adam and Eve, as we'll discuss their meanings more fully, there is an original couple. And so the man and the woman. And so we see in, we see in Moses something about the original covenant of creation with the ones who are presented to us in terms of not history like a newspaper being written. Genesis chapters one or Genesis two and three are not like a newspaper way of telling history today. We're dealing more with, and I think Leon Cass describes this very well in his, in, in, in his book on the Old Testament, the beginning of wisdom, Leon Cass. And he says that the truths we're dealing with are of an ethical and ontological level. And so when we look at this prehistory, we know there is a covenant with humans in the beginning, since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think we'll go a bit more into expressing Yes, Adam and Eve are signs, they are truths, but they're also a real beginning. And so I'm going to go into that a little bit more saying, how far did Moses want us to take Adam and Eve? Should we, how far do we apply that? And, and actually, this is an article that, um, uh, God bless them, Communio, that's the journal that was founded by uh, Joseph Ratzinger, the Communio International Review. I, I, they just put an article I did, and it's called Unmasking the Pharaoh in the Garden of Eden. Maybe they'll let me have access that I can get that up for you guys next week. I'll be trying this week to get that. That goes into a little bit more detail on that question. I did also want to add Catholic 460. That's Catholic460.com. You want to learn a little bit more of what happened to Moses? On Mount Sinai, I put a free manuscript uh, at catholic460.com. It's uh, something like you, you go to that website, you click breathe with both lungs. And as you scroll down, one of the first things you'll come to is a free manuscript called 
Transfiguration, St. Athanasius and the New Evangelization. We'll go into more of what I described as deification and what Moses looked like coming down from the mountain. Just if you want to do a little pre-reading before we get into things for next week. Thanks you, doctor. Would you be able to close us in prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, you called us in Jesus Christ before the world was created. May we come to know Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit lead us into the fullness of knowledge of Jesus Christ and the love his sacred heart has for us. Please, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, grant us always the intercession of Mary, the ever-Virgin Mother of God and our loving Mother, for her intercession, her mantle to protect us and cloak us, and to lead us into a deeper prayer life, and to lead us into deeper love of our neighbor. We ask this, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.